Sometimes the drains, like dependable banks, returned their deposit with interest. In summer, like bad banks, they stink. But look, here in my tweezers is the rarest piece of all, the British Guiana. Even in such a rotten state, these six thousand aching square feet will buy you seven million pounds. Most men, most people, would never permit a spouse to eject them from under their childhood eaves. John Cancross is different. Here are my reasonable inferences. Born under an obliging star, eager to please, too kind, too earnest, he is nothing of the ambitious poet's quiet greed. He really believes that to write a poem in praise of my mother— her eyes, her hair, her lips, and come by to read it aloud, will soften her, make him welcome in his own house. But she knows that her eyes are nothing like the Galway turf, by which she intended very green, and since she has no Irish blood, the line is anemic. Whenever she and I listen, I sense in her slowing heart a retinal crust of boredom that blinds her to the pathos of the scene, a large, large-hearted man pleading his cause without hope in the unmodish form of a sonnet. A thousand may be hyperbole. Many of the poems my father knows are long, like those famed creations of bank employees, the cremation of Sam McGee and the wasteland. Trudy continues to tolerate the occasional recitation. For her, a monologue is better than an exchange preferable to another turn round the unweeded garden of their marriage. Perhaps she indulges him out of guilt, what little remains. My father speaking poetry to her was once, apparently, a ritual of their love. Strange that she can't bear to tell him what he must suspect, what she's bound to reveal, that she no longer loves him, that she has a lover. On the radio today, a woman recounted hitting a dog, a golden retriever, with her car on a lonely road at night. She crouched in her headlights by its side, holding the dying creature's paw through its spasms of frightful pain. Large, brown, forgiving eyes stared into hers all the while. She took in her free hand a rock and dashed it several times against the poor dog's skull. To dispatch John Cairncross would take only one blow, one coup de verite. Instead, as he begins to recite, Trudy will assume her bland, listening look. I, however, attend closely. We generally go to his poetry library on the first floor. A mantelpiece clock with rackety balance wheel makes the only sound as he takes his usual chair. Here, In the presence of a poet, I permit my conjectures to flourish. If my father looks towards the ceiling to compose his thoughts, he'll see deterioration in the Adam-style designs. Damage has spread plaster dust like icing sugar across the spines of famous books. My mother wipes her chair with her hand before she sits. Without flourish, my father draws breath and begins. He recites fluently with feeling. Most of the modern poems leave me cold, too much about the self, too glassily cool with regard to others, too many gripes in too short a line, but as warm as the embrace of brothers at John Keats and Wilfred Owen.
I feel their breath upon my lips, their kiss. Who would not wish to have written candied apple, quince, and plum, and gourd, or the pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall? I picture her from across the library through his adoring eyes. She sits within a big leather armchair that dates from Freud's Vienna. Her lithe, bare legs are partly, prettily tucked beneath her. One elbow is bent against the armrest to support her drooping head. The fingers of her free hand drum lightly on her ankle. The late afternoon is hot, the windows are open, the traffic of St. John's Wood pleasantly hums. Her expression is pensive, her lower lip looks heavy. She moistens it with a spotless tongue. A few blonde ringlets lie damply on her neck. Her cotton dress...